Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Cron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Ian Jirich from the Jirich Family Office. So Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's it's my first international podcast. <laughs> yeah, you're you're going global now, right? You're 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 big time. So I uh, really appreciate you joining us and kind of sharing your expertise. Um, haven't really, as we were kind of chatting before the call here, been more focused on on interviewing syndicators, but this is going to be. Uh, an interesting episode where we kind of share the other side where we're looking at the family office, how they kind of make assessments on how they're going to deploy capital, how they're finding deals, getting deal flow. So really excited to kind of share that or let you share your knowledge today. I'll give you a little bit of an intro first. So a little bit about Ian. Uh, he, The Dirich family office is located in the DC metro area and has ownership and interest in over 3,000 multifamily units. Ian owned and managed four highly successful waste management companies and each firm he launched was repositioned then sold to competitors or private equity. He continues to grow and efficiently run the family office's real estate holdings. So uh, my understanding is you're really focused on um, yeah, getting into the multifamily space, continuing to grow your portfolio, and just being really aggressive with your growth strategies. So um, Ian, I'll let you kind of share a little bit more about your background, kind of, you know, you've got, sounds like you got an interesting story kind of coming from the waste management space and, and getting into real estate. So can you give a little bit more context on, on how you got into the real estate in the first place? Sure. So I, I came from the waste industry uh, world, um, building up really big companies for private equity. We would come in, basically it's kind of the same concept, which is why I love multifamily with the value add strategy, is we come in for waste companies, find inefficiencies, poor management, um, bad service, um, people not paying enough, ability to increase pricing. We come in and value add trash companies, consolidate, wrap up, maybe build a portfolio, um, and then exit out to another company or big national trash recycling company. So when we originally had that, I was making great money as CEO. We started just kind of LP investing as your basic investor, like seven, eight years ago, just writing a $250,000 check, million dollar check here and there, entering some of the syndications, kind of learning the space. Um, and then as we kind of exited our last bigger waste recycling company, um, about three, four years ago, we kind of dove much more into the uh, hardcore multifamily space. Um, my biggest thing that I loved was getting hands-on. So before I could go make all these, I mean, most family offices write a $5 million check, two and a half to maybe sometimes $20 million, depending on the size of the family office. Family offices go from about 70 million on the low end to multi-billionaire family offices. So that your check size clearly varies. Um, but before I wanted to start just writing these checks out to syndicators and sponsors, besides just vetting, looking at returns that they're showing me, I wanted to kind of understand. So we went out, we we bought storage, we bought mobile home, we bought warehousing, we bought multifamily. So we could truly understand and wrap our hands around what it's like to manage. So I could make all the mistakes myself versus somebody else making them and I can learn from them. Um, we didn't go out and buy thousands and thousands of units. When we first said that, we went out and bought a smaller multifamily, a small storage, a decent sized office building and a large warehouse or two. Um, really great. We exited out of the mobile home parks pretty quickly. We still hold on to 
the uh, storage and warehousing, um, just as long-term holds. Um, but the transition really wasn't that difficult um, coming from a C-level view um, on it. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, but we've been incredibly excited about it and diving in trying to scale as fast as we can. I don't know if I fully answered the question, I went a bit of a tangent, sorry. Yeah, no, that's perfect. That's that's a great background. Kind of making that transition, it sounds like you just had some really comp like skill set that just you were already focused on growing and scaling and managing businesses and doing it in an effective way. And I mean that translates so so naturally into the multifamily business, right? Because it's so scalable. It's all about systems and and looking at ways you can find inefficiencies, increase income, decrease expenses, and just kind of manage the business better and 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 have good access to grow your, you know equity in a deal, have capital appreciation and continue scaling into other properties, right? And reallocating. So, um, you know, it's a little bit different, as I mentioned with the syndicators, I, I typically talk to where it's like, hey, they're, they're putting together the deal, they're raising the capital. Talk about it from your perspective where you're actually looking for maybe deals to, to buy yourself or you're looking for um, sponsors that you can invest in and with on deals. Talk about how you're getting that deal, the deal flow of opportunities to come across your desk. Sure. So we, we do it in three different ways. One, we buy our own assets. Um, when we buy our own assets, um, it's similar to the, both the other ways we invest, but it's building those key relationships relationships with those brokers out there. Um, like we're not set up and I don't want to be the guy emailing 500 multifamily owners and cold calling and doing all that. So we're probably going to pay a little bit more. We're not going to find that 10,000 grand slam, the guy that sells you a hundred K a unit thing for 50K a unit. Like we're not gonna find that in our space. But we develop absolutely amazing relationships with the brokers all up and down the East Coast and Southeast Southwest, where exactly we wanna be. Uh, we, got, we meet them, we tell them exactly what we're looking for. We show them our um, PFS. They actually know that we are a legit buyer. Um, I think the, the biggest thing there is when we've bought, we've always closed. Like we've never not closed on a property we put under contract. And we don't retrade traditionally. So like a lot of people always talk on Facebook or other areas of we go in there and then we find A, B, C, and D and I'm coming back to that seller to get my real price that I want. And like, I think when you do that, like it's a joke. Like people don't take you seriously. You make yourself look like an amateur when you do that because it's retrading. So I'll give you an example. Um, we have Canopy Creek down in Jacksonville, Florida right now. It's 288 units. We got it off market from someone we bought another deal from in Florida about two months ago. They said, hey, the seller wants to show us the two or three people, sell it off market real quick. Here's where we want to be. Within a week and a half, we had it under contract and wrapped up. And the reason they let us look at it and went with us is because they know we were going to close. They knew we were going to retrade. And a broker gets paid when it sells. The last thing they want to do is go through a 45-day cycle or 30 day cycle plus all the previews and walkthroughs and process is have to do it again because it may take them six months to get that paycheck. They want to know that they're gonna get paid in 60 days, especially if that seller has more assets. They want to know that, hey, if I sold this one very smoothly for him, brought him a great buyer, he doesn't let me sell the rest of his assets for him. So developing those key relationships with broker and then performing on those relationships is truly what makes your deal flow immensely better than just someone blasting out to 8,000 people and you're just throwing a number into the crowd and praying you get it. And that's when you overpay. Right. 
Yeah, and, and how about on the the side of you know, say you're wanting to co-invest or you know do a joint venture deal with a sponsor? Talk about that. Are you having? Are you looking for sponsors actively to kind of find the the diamond in the rough to find the best deals and the best operators out there, or are you kind of waiting and letting them approach you? How does that kind of work? Talk about that process. It's a big combination of everything. So turn like we're pretty active in Facebook and other areas. So like we get a million unsolicited offers of invest in my syndication deal. And I can't tell you how many I get a week, which is great. I love the deal flow. But when we get a deal and it shows, hey, great, 8% cash on cash, 15% IRR, I get like 15 of those a week. I, I take it and just delete within five seconds. I don't even dive deep in like, that's a dime a dozen. I can go to a, a big billion dollar sponsor who I know will perform it. It's like cadre and get my 12 to 15% like clockwork. I might as well just do prep equity at that point. So we said, hey, what do we have to do to really build a relationship and ensure that we're going to get the best deals? So we came up with a couple programs that are kind of unique to what we do. So sponsors, when they buy properties, have to put down earnest money. And that earnest money is anywhere from a hundred grand to $3 million on bigger deals. So not every sponsor has a million dollars sitting around that they can just go toss out for 90 days. So we have a fun little loan program. We'll actually loan interest-free um, all the earnest money to the sponsors. And then kind of developing that same relationship, we've said, hey, since we're going to come in and try and invest a bigger thing, um, no, it's not necessarily have the net worth. Like, so really like emerging managers who've done four or five syndications, got it down pat, know what they're doing, got the concept but they're not worth $50 million yet. When they want to go take down a $60 million property, they're not qualifying for that loan, especially for their liquid net worth, because you got to show about $5 million in liquid cash to get there. So we're going to say, hey, we'll come on, bring value and sign on the loan with you guys, helping you qualify. And that really allows us to get way better deal flow and deal flow first, because you can go to any family office. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of us, but it's what really trying to truly separates us out. So we kind of do a couple of unique lending programs, signing loans to kind of develop um, bigger and deeper relationships with sponsors. So that way we know that we're going to get first look before everybody else does. Um, and we're always looking for a relationship with new sponsors, but at the same time, we're not writing your 50K to 100K check into an investment. So like we don't deal with people that have eight people in their sponsorship team, or this is my second deal. I'm in a tertiary market buying a complete teardown. So it's really trying to find great emerging sponsors and encouraging the younger ones. Hey, once you get there and have a proven track record, come on back. We're happy to take a look. Yeah. And I actually heard you talk on another podcast where you were kind of talking about where you, you, you actually don't go out to those big, you know, multi-billion dollar funds or different groups out there that you can just kind of, Hey, you know, deploy some cash and just let it sit and ride. You actually look for those more emerging managers, the smaller groups, the more entrepreneurial groups, and yeah, could you touch on why that is? They want it. It's like watching college athletics versus professional athletics. Professional athletics just disgusts me. Um, sorry if that's rough, it's blatant, but people in college try. They're down 30 points. They're still going for an every down, every hoop. You look at big NBA players or NFL quarterbacks, they just walk off the field. Like LeBron James has walked off with 15 seconds left in a game. To me, that's, I mean, there are other guys multi-billion what he wants, but to me, that's disgraceful. So it's, I want someone that wants it just as bad as me. I'm trying to grow my family office to a whole other level because I'm looking to 
I'm providing for nine people now. I'm looking at how I provide for 36 and then 72. So I'm trying to get to that level. And I can't do that with someone that I'm just a number two. I need to have a deeper relationship with someone that I bring more value to. And we work together and have more of a business relationship and a partnership than just a click of a button. I got 5 million from the church family office. I got 10 million from this family office. Now I have my 250 million for my monster project. Like they don't try. The returns are lower. They don't manage as closely. I mean, I, we did one investment a while ago. It's in Nashville. And I flew out last, what was it, June, this past June. And I've been at that property more in the past year than the sponsor has. And that's what happens when you have a big sponsor. They let the property manager do it. They have some asset manager in their fancy office in Chicago or Boston. And they manage from afar, from the high level. And I see people on social media, it's like, I'm tired of doing these small deals. I just want to manage from uh, the sky. And I'm like, that's not what we do. Like, that's not multifamily real estate or any kind of real estate. Like, you actually have to get your hands dirty. No, I don't need you turning units and repainting them yourself. But be on site once a month, every quarter. I mean, I was only at the property three times. So we have a large check in there. And it wasn't performing. And one of the reasons it's not performing is because that sponsor is not fully active. And a great podcast would have been that conversation that I had with that sponsor on the phone. So if that's a very rough example, it's people want it. I love that drive and the effort there. Yeah. And that's a perfect kind of analogy. I like how you kind of described of, you know, college sports versus pro sports. And that's actually something I I always looked at too, kind of, that's why I was always drawn to watching college sports and, you know, it's perfect analogy and kind of how you, how you make that comparison between, um, you know, the big funds and the big groups out there versus like those, you know, those syndicators that are really hustling and really trying to squeeze out as much value as they can for their LP investors, because, you know, they want to, you know, attract them, bring them into a deal, you know, outperform other groups out there and then continue them, you know, they want to build a long-term relationship. So their LPs keep coming back into a deal. So it's a perfect example there. So what are some of the key things that um, you kind of touched on a few, like, but what are the key things when you kind of find that emerging manager, you maybe done a a few transactions with them, you've done the earnest money uh, transaction with them. What are other key things that would kind of enable you to continue that relationship to say, Hey, this went well, let's, let's do another deal. Talk about that. Like what are, what you really look for in a sponsor? So, so two ways there. One, um, I'll tell you what I look for in a sponsor. And then two, I'll tell you how we kind of keep going with that sponsor. Um, and it kind of allows us to, I would love to work with six sponsors forever and never have to work with another sponsor. No, 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 I'm always open to it, but to have the ability to get the returns that you want with six people and have the greatest, um, not problematic, I'm trying to think of the word, um, like prearranged, prearranged set um, is what I would love. But I mean, you want a sponsor who understands how to scale and grow and build. Some people are great at just buying one asset, managing, exiting, and just doing it two times a year. But what happens if we have the ability to write a $100 million check to you and crap, okay, I can go find 20 deals and knock it out. Not everybody can do that. It's the ability to be able to scale, hustle, and grow at scale. I I think we were talking before the podcast about growing pains. Sponsors have those too. Because, I mean, you look at um, the syndicator who – I very, my very first LP investment was with a company called Geld out in California. They're a very safe syndicator, lower return syndicator, but they only do 50% leverage. So it's a very, very safe one. 
I got into my first LPs, I wanted safety. Um, and anything over 10% was good back in the day. Now, not so much. But they started about 0809, just um, Keith and his cousin. And they've grown to over $2 billion in AUM. So, I mean, those are guys that every year can take down a quarter billion dollars or half a billion dollars worth of assets. And a lot of people can't do that. They were able to successfully infill their team by bringing in partners, asset managers, acquisition specialists, investment associates, and really having an amazing team. And the ability to build that team is key as you go to scale. So I think watching and kind of encouraging and mentoring some of these sponsors from our level, especially because some of us are telling us we usually own lots of other businesses. So our ability to upper and manage is something we can pass down to some of these young and emerging syndicators. Um, so we look for people that can do that. One of the ways that we kind of try and stay involved is when syndicators go from say a $20 million purchase to a $100 million purchase, it's a different kind of range of LP cash, right? So back in the day, they just go out to all their LP list, 50, 100K, 250K, and they'd raise $5 million and be great or $10 million and be set. But now you're in the world of preferred equity, participating in preferred equity, institutional sponsors, and they kind of require other metrics. They require people that have major net worth. They also require you to require you to put personal cash in the deal. So we kind of change up our game. We say, hey, you know what? As you're now taking on these monster projects, let us help you play a bigger role. We'll come onto the team. Not, not, we're not looking for a large amount of the GP. We take a percentage. Um, we do the earnest money. We sign on the $100 million loan. So you know it's there. And then three, we'll guarantee that we'll bring the entire GP capital stack. Because that may be five to ten, not usually like five to seven million dollars. We're writing a check for in there because these syndicators, if they do five deals a year, that's twenty-five million dollars. Most people don't have twenty-five million dollars a year to put into every single deal that they do. So we kind of grow with those sponsors, and as they go from emerging to much stronger, we kind of grow with them with the programs that we offer. So it's not just like a mentorship because they know what they're doing and they're great, but it's kind of like a an incubator for emerging managers. We provide the assets and value that we can to them at programs. They kind of grow with us and we grow with them as well. And it leads to hopefully a long 15, 20 year relationship. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a perfect explanation there because I mean, the biggest uh, problem could be, you know, growing too fast because every, probably every owner, manager, syndicator out there wants to grow and scale their portfolio. But if they don't have the systems in place and the deal flow or be able to deploy the cash fast enough, then actually manage the assets that they acquire, then you're better off than, you know, like you're not suited to go with that sponsor because, you know, you have to be able to manage effectively. Otherwise you're putting your capital at risk. So now you've, you've talked a lot about these sponsorship team and kind of knowing what key fundamentals you, you look for in a team. Now let's talk about the deal. Like what are you, what kind of key metrics are you looking for um, when you're looking if the deal is going to be suited for you or not? I'm um, Biggest things to be GP team. Um, you have all of the the things that you have the Brad Sunmark groups. You have the Think Multifamily groups, and while those guys do a great training and great programs, they have these unique metrics that are kind of designed to help people get their first deal done, which is great. But we really don't look at any kind of a sponsorship team that has more than two people. Occasionally, we'll do like three. Like if you're looking at a fifty million dollar or five hundred unit portfolio, like three big groups taking it down is totally fine. But when you have seven, eight, nine people in a group, it's just something we can entertain just because it kind of shows that you can't meet the minimum requirements you need to get a deal done. You have to have eight people to do that. And that doesn't, it's like a safety or risk factor for us. 
Um, we look at how you kind of promote the deal. Do you have experience in the area? Do you live in Hawaii, but you want to manage something in North Carolina? How often are you actually going to get there? Um, is your entire portfolio in Texas and you have 4,000 units there and you live in Florida? Why don't you live in Texas if you got 4,000 units there? I want someone who's actually active and participating in their stuff. Um, during IRR levels, um, we're very much a 165 to a 20%. Clearly, we'd love a lot more of 20 but above 20, you're getting into very, very heavy value add or um, new construction or land development, which is fine. You're just going to have to do those two different levels of what do you want? Do you want low cash flow, high IRR, or decent cash flow and a medium IRR? So we kind of look at both examples. Um, we occasionally do coupon clipping. So um, Benjamin Inman from Inman Equities put out a deal last year making Georgia a small deal, but it's probably like a 16, 70% IRR, but it's got a 14% cash flow. So we basically just clipped that coupon um, for a million dollars. Says, hey, I'll, I'll make $140,000 a year right off that coupon. Um, I think that's great to have in your portfolio because you want big cash flow. Because look at most syndications, they have a seven or eight pref and they just pay you that seven or eight percent no matter what going forward. Your, your uh, return doesn't really change that much until the years like three, four, and five. But if you can get that occasional coupon clip for the higher cash flow, I enjoy that. Um, other things you're looking for from sponsors. I'll give another Benjamin Inman story. He's one of my favorite sponsors out there. Um, so I fly down to Florida, Daytona Beach. The guy's literally out there with a giant team doing renovations, and he's just stacking all these shutters, like from the whole building next to the dumpster. And coming from the trash, I'm like, why aren't you putting them in the dumpster? Like, what are you doing double work? And he's like, no, some guy's going to pick him up from Craigslist. He's going to pay me 500 bucks for all the shutters in the whole building. It's literally just taking a photo of shutters, putting, it, putting them out there, and making 500 bucks instead of, it's like a full, like it would have cost him what a thousand dollars to throw away in the dumpsters. So it's a $1,500 flip. And it's the fact that you're doing that one time, how many other things is that sponsor doing to truly create extra value or not overspend on the project? Because over the course of five years, that can be the whole difference of a point in return. I mean, from a 17, 18%. And over five years, I mean, that's 5% in your return or 50 grand in your pocket. So the sponsors willing to go the extra mile during around like sponsorship. I'm not expecting you to be on site fixing things on a daily basis, but just the fact that you think that way. It's how can I truly make this project better than just doing the process? Yeah, and that's really, I mean, a unique example of like looking for little ways to increase income, decrease expenses, and just really thinking about it from like a scientific manner, right? Like, I mean, that's just such a great example of like, okay, you're gonna save a whole bunch of money here. Well not spend money, you're actually going to make money by getting rid of, you know, what some people might call trash, right? Because you're doing the renovation and otherwise would have just been thrown away. So that's a great example there. Can I throw one more big thing in yeah. there? And so my biggest thing I look for on sponsors is, and I, I always ask this, and I tell everyone to ask this, if you take away all the fees they're generating, how much cash are they actually in on the deal? Because that'll truly show how dedicated a sponsor is into that particular deal for the most part. So a lot of sponsors will go ahead and have their acquisition fee. I'm a big supporter of acquisition fees and the fees they need to run their business, do their stuff, totally support it. But if they're not putting in more than that fee into the deal, I'm nervous. If they're only putting $100,000 into the deal, I'm nervous. We see groups that'll put 30, per, like we're doing a deal in Houston right now. And I can't put enough money into the deal. Like they won't let me. I would shove more money in there. They're doing 30% of the deal themselves because the return is so high. 
And it shows you how good the deal is. If the sponsor's limiting the cash you can put in because they have their own cash in. So if you look at a sponsor like, hey, we put $100,000 into every deal and it's a $10 million raise, why am I trusting you with my money? You don't even trust your own deal with your money. Or it's, are you financially stable enough? Are you making enough money in your other syndications or things like that? Um, yeah, it's, it's a big thing for us right yeah, there. It's super important to have skin in the game because I mean, they're the ones running the deal. They should have belief that they can manage it well to make a good enough return to put their own money into it, right? So a uh, great point there. Um, you typically hear about family offices, you know, when they're writing bigger checks, they typically have some, you know, a seat at the table where they can kind of negotiate on, on different things, whether it be fees or how you kind of structure the deal. So can, can you talk about that? Like you're writing, you know, a, a couple million dollar check or something. How do you kind of go through that process and structure? If somebody presents you a deal, like, do you go and just say, no, I don't, I like the deal, but I'm going to want some flexibility on this, or I want a joint venture. Talk about how you kind of go through that process to finding the, the right deal for you and, and negotiating with the sponsor. Younger sponsors love the word family office because they know we have the ability to write a 5 million or larger check. But when they actually sit down with us, a lot of them are shocked because the stuff that they can kind of get away with on a 50 to $100,000 deal investor, like a 3% acquisition fee, a loan guarantee fee, a, a bunch of the crazy fees that people try and charge. A realistic sponsor is not going to come to me with those fees. A younger one is them say, hey, you actually found an absolutely amazing deal. I love it. We're interested in investing. BTW, here's our term sheet. $7 million will bring 90% of your equity. Um, your fee is 1%. Acquisition is 1% asset management fee. Everything else is thrown out. It's not even a negotiation. It's not a talking point. It is what it is. If you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. And then there's a variety of other things. It's also, if we're going to bring 90% of the capital stack, sure, we're going to want some kind of equity split on there. If I'm bringing 20% and it's just a great deal, no, I'm not going to negotiate that hard. But if you truly want, it's just like when you go to an institutional capital and you grow up, you do like participating pref. You can almost treat us like that, where we'll kind of get a set guarantee rate for our money. And then we'll kind of do the deal with you guys where, we take a gamble on the deals and be great when we get part of that participation in the GP side as a percentage. So we'll definitely negotiate and come back for that if we're playing such a larger role in the equity raise. Right. So let's talk about this. I mean, it sounds like you get approached all the time. You're getting deals sent to you, you know, probably over 15. I think you said that a week, like how do you as a family office and other family offices like, out there like to be approached because I mean, like you said, syndicators, they, they hear that word family office and they're like, Oh, those, they have, you know, deep pockets and they like, they want to invest in my deal and you want to introduce your deal to a family office, but how do you go about doing that? What, what, how do you like to see it done in a way that's like, okay, I didn't mind how that guy approached me or, you know, it wasn't kind of just spamming me with this deal. Talk about how you like to be approached. It's not through an email. It's not through a phone call. It's not through the mail. It's it's really hard right now because of COVID. So you have to look at it as this. Like most family offices, the way we invest with new sponsors is an introduction from another family office, which brings you back to the point of how do you get into your first family office? That's your hardest plan. Once you're in with someone, like here you go, you take my value of $100 million net worth. And I recommend it to somebody else and somebody else. And like, if I'm going to go put $4 million in, I'm said, hey, come and just do this deal with me or this guy's great. I don't want this deal, but it works for you. Like we all kind of have our own needs and different metrics. Like I may know somebody who wants to go clip a 10% or 15% coupon for 10 years. 
and I don't want that, but your deal fits, like I'll introduce you to them and say, Hey, great sponsor, not my deal, meet so-and-so family office. And they'll write you the check and they take my recommendation for it. Um, there's a bunch of family office meetings and get togethers. Um, a lot of us have big fancy cars. If you got a Porsche, there's the Porsche club, you got a Lambo, there's the Lambo club. Um, I mean, I'm not saying go buy a $200,000 car to come meet me, but I mean, if you're a syndicator, you make money, you can buy a decent Porsche or something like there's avenues where we're going to be at. Come make a connection. And the biggest thing for you is how can you make a connection in the first 30 seconds or less? Because that's all you get. I mean, you talk to like a, a billionaire and you got three seconds to make an impression to get a conversation versus me. I'll talk to you for 20 seconds, then move on my day. But it's find a way to meet us in person or have somebody introduce you. It may be a, it can be a different syndicator that says, Hey, I work with this family office. They have a bunch of extra cash. I don't have any deal flow. And if you're good friends, I mean, a bunch of syndicators are actually good friends with each other and, and share some LPs and things like that. They'll introduce you. And then once you're in, you're in. So if that kind of answers your question, I know that's very large, broad throughout there. I apologize. No, no, no problem at all. Because I mean, it's really coming down to what you prefer. I mean, some, some groups are going to act totally differently, but it's really kind of your take on, on how it works. And since you're kind of in the, in the space and kind of, you know, have connections with other family offices, you're going to understand how they like to be approached and different things like that. So it's, it's perfect advice to kind of, um, you know, it looks like you kind of have something to add on to that. I'll let you go ahead. Sorry, I just want to forget it in my head. So I'll give an example. Peaceable Street is a, like a prep equity or participating F company that's out there, they're, they're a family office. So several family offices will have like a capital company or some type of like investment vehicle that has a website with an email and public figures. If you want to email and cold call, like that's your opportunity into, you don't want to call or email directly into like the family office address or the family office phone number or me directly. If you call into one of the kind of advisors or like our risk people or any people that work into our staff, for the investment company, that's your, that's a great way to actually make a co call, email in your deal flow and say, hey, this is something that we're putting through. Does this kind of meet your metrics? If it doesn't, can we set up a phone call to kind of understand what your investment philosophy, what are your mandates, how could potentially maybe partner on a deal together? Can we find one that fits your needs? Um, that is one way that you can kind of get in with a cold call or a letter is by going that way. Okay, no good good insight there. So, yeah, this was really a lot of insight into the family office space, and I appreciate your all the value you added today. So actually want to start wrapping it up, taking it into the final four questions here. So first, well, you're just going to give short to the point answers. So we'll kind of go through this pretty quick here. So what is your favorite real estate or business book? I'm going to say it again for, as I'm talking towards a syndicator, right? Um, I, I'm not a big fan of like the general syndication books, but I have this, I'll say this book again. I keep saying it. Fanatical Prospecting by Jeb Blunt. It's a sales book. And it walks through sales for on the phone, um, email, social media, cold calling, writing letters, everything. And I think as a syndicator, sure, it's hard to find a deal. But once you get your relationships, finding deal flows easy, manage those deals in your diligence, it's not that hard. But as you expand and continue having to raise capital, that's a sales game. So this book, I've had every single one of our salespeople read it. I've given it to other syndicators. And I think it truly helps people learn how to talk to people in a cash flow kind of raise way. So I mean, at the end of the day, you're a salesperson, you're selling yourself and you're selling your product of, hey, I need you to write me a $2 million check for this deal. How am I gonna sell you this thing? Is it through your Zoom meetings, through whatever? 
but I think you really have to hone some of your conversational skills and general sales skills. And I think this book really could be a great benefit for a lot of syndicators who maybe are not the best salespeople. Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, this business, it's, it's relationship business. And even if you don't consider yourself quote unquote, a salesperson, you're always kind of selling something and, you know, whether it be yourself relationships, trying to get, you know, in with a broker or, you know, even as a buyer, right? Like you have to convince the buyer that you're credible. You have the experience, you have the team behind you to actually close on a deal. Right. So I've I've read the book a couple of years ago and it's a fantastic book. So um, next question here, what is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? To know it's okay to walk away and take a loss. Um, So in the very beginning, I didn't like taking a loss. Now I'm not afraid to, if we put down some earnest money, 50K, 75K, and I find something I don't like and that deal changes. For some younger people, they can't afford to, they they don't want to afford to take a 50K loss. But if you find a deal and that deal changes and your IRR goes from a 18% that you pitch to investors down to a 13 and you don't want to lose your personal cash, you're going to, I always see some of them do it and they underperform. They ruin a relationship with a variety of investors by underperforming. They're not going to want to come back if you're returning 13%, you promised 18, 19. So I've walked away from 50 to $75,000 before. And I just wish in the very beginning in my head, so it's like, you know, it's okay. It's just money. We will make more. This is a long-term game. It's not one, one deal can make or break you. So I'd rather take a 50K loss and do a better deal. Okay, great advice. So what's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? Um, I have one of those, my book of life. Um, with so many things going on, I always have this book with me, my pen, and I have a, a daily list of just things that I have to complete and tasks. And whenever something pops up, I just stop what I'm doing and I'll, I jot it in there. So I, that way I just don't forget little thing so it's hey um the power bill got screwed up here so you get cut off i mean clearly that's you drop what you're doing you handle that but all like the five to seven small issues that pop up during the day that you're not going to deal with or the actually open an email and don't keep it as new and you forget or lose i keep my book for so at eight nine o'clock at night i run back through my day plan for my next day and i actually ensure that everything i knew i needed to get done gets closed because before i used to unfortunately miss stuff. And then the next day I'd be like, crap, it was too late. I looked bad. I didn't do this. I said I would. So just really keeping track of those tiny things in my notebook really saves me a lot. It makes me successful. Perfect. Yeah. So last thing here is what do you do for fun? I day trade stocks for fun. <laughs> um, if you've watched my TikTok, I have a TikTok um, for the younger generation. Um, I turned $800,000 into 2.7 million in 2020 day trading stocks. Oh, wow. Congrats. That's okay. a 260%. I was a very happy return. Yeah, no, that's a, a fantastic hobby. You know, you're even, even in your, the time when you're having fun and you're kind of time off, you're still making money and, and, and doing good, <laughs> getting good returns at it. So congrats there. So last thing here, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you've got going on? Sure. So um, our family office website is just DJURIC familyoffice.com. My email's on the website. Um, feel free to just reach out. Don't email me a deck or a pitch, but reach out and say, Hey, this is kind of what we're doing. This is the path we want to go on. Here's how we kind of love to partner. And then we actually, we're happy to kind of have that conversation versus when you just email for, Hey, we have a deal. Can you write me money? I'm the likelihood of me fully finishing reading your emails, not very high. Um, so 
We're on social media, Jewish Family Office, Facebook, TikTok, you name it, we're there. Um, we're always happy to have a conversation and look forward to trying to bring value to anybody we can. Perfect. Yeah. No, I appreciate you coming on the show. You've already added a ton of value and, you know, I'm grateful you came on and, and uh, you really just dove into your experience and kind of insights into how a family office really assesses deals, looks at the multifamily space, um, evaluates sponsors and different things like that. So um, I really enjoyed the conversation today and I want to say thanks again for coming on the show. No, I really appreciate you having me. I, I love sharing the story and then I love meeting new people. So it's a great time. Awesome. Well, talk to you again soon. Thank you, sir. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.